Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today, well, it's really my co-host today. My, yeah, I was gonna say, I'm not really a guest. Yes, you're not a guest. You're my co-host, uh, which is not really the most formal relationship that you and I have. Here, <laughs> <laughs> only know each other as podcasters. Yes, we're just podcast friends. My daughter, Anna Koppelman, is here to co-host and to ask me questions. This is an Ask Me Anything episode of the moment. The letters we get after we do these are so great. People write to the moment BK at gmail.com. We read all of them and we really appreciate it. And we're glad to know that you dig these conversations. And uh, I certainly love them because it's a chance to be with Anna. And I really love answering the questions, hearing what you're thinking about and trying to uh, connect with you through that dialogue. So Boo, what's going on? I just wanted to say that so many of the questions this time were addressed to both me and you, and it made me so happy. Right? Isn't that great? Yeah. It's becoming a usual thing. It is. It's, it is. It's a usual. I won't. I haven't done one without you. I haven't done an Ask Me Anything pod without you in yeah. a long, long time. But I think this was the first time people were like, dear Brian and Anna. I agree. I agree with you. And it makes me smile. Uh, and it's great. So, yeah, yeah you're, you're official. I'm officially a part of it. Okay, I can ask you the first question. Are you ready? Rock and roll. Okay. Hey, Brian, I'm an early career WGA Raider. Couple jobs under my belt, but still young. My question for you is this. As a Raider, it feels like you have to constantly live at the extremes of optimism and pessimism. Blind optimism because you have to get out of bed, start a new project, and tell yourself this one will be different. It feels like you have to be at least somewhat delusional to keep kicking the football over and over again. This time it will be different. But you also need to be able to work with complete detachment and never get excited because even when you do get a star attached, the other shoe likely is likely to drop. The funding will fall through and failure is the baseline. You have to be a pessimist to avoid daily heartbreak or at least in order to brace yourself from it. You've been doing this a while. How do you stay sane with this kind of required double think? I am losing my mind. Thanks and love the pod, John. Well, John, don't lose your mind. I think that... I have a hard time locating that pessimism within me. I don't think labeling it pessimism would be useful for how I have always looked at all this. A couple, I think there's also a couple of ways to get it at, the, at what you're really talking about. For me, the doing of the work has to be separate from the result. And that's not just something like that somebody kind of says, and this I think is part of why what Julia Cameron talks about with the morning pages is so important. I mean, it's just what she talks about, but the result of doing the morning pages. I have to get to a place where when I'm creating the thing, I'm doing it to make me and Dave, who I write with, uh, you know, we write separately, but we then put the things together and it's one thing. So when I'm writing on the couch, just alone there, it's really just to express the thing or tell the story or connect with that side of myself. That's not being in denial of the realities, but I do think some version, some bit of denial is useful. You know, when we went into the basement to write our first script, we, we didn't put on the wall uh, the odds of this succeeding or one in a million. 
because that wouldn't be useful to us. And and this goes back to this being a kind of self-selecting thing. Yeah, if you could just make a rational decision on whether, I mean, if one could make a rational decision on whether one should be in the arts, well, one can't make that rational decision and decide yes, um, unless one has some kind of weird guarantee of success. What, What it is, is that you're pushed and pulled to this work. And so you have to do it. And then, yes, the thought of the rewards can be torturous, right? Because it sucks you in the dream of what this work can do for you. Because look, writers often have something they want to prove to people who didn't believe in them or who didn't see them. And we all want to be seen, fully seen for the best of what we are and who we are and what we have to offer. And so, of course, the business can crush you at times. It is like the corny, it is the business of dreams. Like it's going to crush you sometimes. But the great sort of the insight I had, and I've told this story before, but perhaps you're a newer listener, is that when our first movie, the first two reviews were really bad before the critical appraisal kind of shifted, but these first two reviews were out for a week first. And when I read them, I was crushed and I got into a little fetus, like a a little, like on the floor, like I rolled up like a fetus. But then I woke up the next morning and I realized, oh, I can still write. And that was freeing to me. It wasn't like it was a way to pretend the other thing didn't happen, but it was like, oh, wait, I can just go write. I can do this work. And because I get lost in it when I'm doing it, even if I procrastinate, it's hard. Once I'm doing it, I get lost in it. Once I'm in it, I don't, I don't need to wrestle with optimism, pessimism, any of that. I'm just like kind of in the world of it. And I would say that's the thing demarcate the time that you're going to work and that work has to block everything else out for the time that you're doing it. And to, for me, I'll say it also gave me juice for the rest of the day. Like when I would do that work, I would then feel jazzed for the rest of the day, like because I'd worked from the part of myself that felt most alive. And that puts the wind in your sails. I guess that puts the wind in your sails to deal with the current's that might be blowing against you. You know, the wind might blow the currents against you, but if you have, if somehow you're going, it makes it possible to uh, power through. Anna, does that get anywhere toward answering it, you think? I think it did. I I have one follow-up question though, which is that you mentioned um, that you just have to keep dreaming or that the reason it's crushing is because you have these dreams. But do you think that it's a choice to keep dreaming or do some people just have like, an indefatigable ability to dream. Well, I guess it's the it's the dreaming or not, it's the commitment to show up and do the work the next day and the next day and the next day. And maybe for some, maybe some people are served by having kind of a big dream of it. And maybe some people are served by turning all that stuff off and just being like, I'm going to do the work. It's doing the work though. And yes, whatever fuels you, whatever the inside voice is fueling you, that has to be the thing that is louder than the other voice telling you it might not work out. And that probably is true for like most things in life that don't have a guarantee, like love or anything like that. Yes. Like love. Don't worry, honey. It's coming. We'll have it again. (laughs) We'll find love. (laughs) Okay. I guess this question bleeds right into it is, uh, Hey, Brian, do you ever have times where you start to feel sorry for yourself? If so, how do you get out of that headspace? What is your self-talk like? 
everybody feels sorry for themselves at one time or another or has through their life. I'll say I don't walk around feeling sorry for myself very often. You've my daughter a long time. You could probably count on like one hand the times you've seen me in that kind of state. But I would say it's not just self-talk. So that's where being isolated is maybe not the best. Like I do things, right? Everyone knows who listens to this. I exercise most days hard. I do meditation. I do morning pages the way Julia Cameron describes in the artist way. Those things together really help get the endorphins going and changing your inside chemicals moving your body smiling those things like the old stuff tony robbins talked about still really true Mm. and talking to somebody in your life sharing being locked down and when we're alone we can catastrophize and then really feel sorry for ourselves but you can find somebody to talk to somebody who shares your goals or who values you or sees you the way you want to be seen. Uh, And if there's nobody, then you have to find a way to do that for yourself. And I think that exercising is really big. Cardiovascular exercise, moving weights around something, do something like that. Uh, Because, and then I think, you know, reading helps. I've always been somebody who's read modern philosophers, self-help people, And even if you reject something that they say, it leads to a different kind of insight. So yeah, look, whatever you're going through, I'm sorry that it's difficult right now and that you're getting down on yourself. And if it really lingers, talk to a professional person because I've done that too. And that's really helped. Talk to somebody, talk to somebody, move your body, find a routine of expression and of contemplation that works together hmm. and keep going. That's interesting. Okay. Now some writing questions. Good day from a young writer in Stockholm, Sweden. Thanks Yo, for what's up, Sweden. <laughs> Thanks for a great podcast. Here's my question. As a writer, what is your philosophy on structure? It seems certain writers meticulously plot out their work in tight act structures, while others follow the notion that a writer should have internalized their required dramaturgy for a good story and will know how to move the narrative along as they go. I find that plotting out a story before I write the draft can serve my creativity well, just like writing in verse is easier for some poets than free form. It forces me to really work each beat to make each piece fit the puzzle. Where do you stand on structure? What was that old meme? Um, why can't we has both? I don't know this meme. It might be a great one. This little young, young, young girl, like a four-year-old just saying like, why can't we have both? Like <laughs> a smile on her face. I think that when I was a young writer, I did not want to do outlines and I just wanted to flow and I just wanted to freely create. And then one of the things I love about songwriting is yes, it's, there's a, a structure that you understand, but I don't really know what the second verse needs to be before I write the first verse. Though, you know, maybe you write a chorus first, you get a tagline that kind of, tells you what the rest of it is um lawrence block who's been on the podcast one of the greatest novelists modern novelists he says that he never knows how the thing's going to end he just writes and keeps going when he's writing his novels and finds it for me doing the work of creating the outline now i'm very free when i outline when dave and i outline we will put lots of dialogue in there are people who are really strict that an outline shouldn't have dialogue you're just doing beats i'll throw a dialogue and if i come up with a good line 
that's exciting to me and fun and my favorite part. I'm going to throw that, that, that dialogue in and let that do some of the work of uh, telling the story in, in the outline. But also doubling back, I mean, in the same way that one knows what a three and a half minute song kind of, inst- we instinctively know what a three and a half minute song has to do. The majority of them, some can always do something different. It is true that you know how to tell a story. You know what the beginning, middle, and end is. You know how to tell a story if you're at a coffee shop and someone sits down with your group of friends and someone's like, hey, tell that great story. And you want to make an impression. You know how to do that. You know how to entice somebody with the beginning of the story, how to get them more engaged, which is something that we understand. So, yes, that is internalized. It's still useful to take that and then put it into beats to help you tell your story. So then when you're writing, really writing the scenes, you can just fly through. And you should be open to change. We're always open to changing stuff. You know, the outline just is, gives you some place to go. Uh, and you can decide to go someplace else. But you at least are doing that in a considered way because you know there's at least one route that you've mapped ahead of time. And I'm also guessing that the need for an outline is probably greater in creating a series than in a movie or something like that. Definitely, because it all has to connect. Totally. Yeah. Anna and Brian. I hear about scripts or ideas that were brought by multiple studios or tied and never got off the ground. This seems a lot like an NBA player who has been on multiple teams and whether it's chemistry being a head case or injury that can't stay on the court. From your experience, what is the similarities between a coach who thinks he can fix a player and a producer or writer who thinks they're the one who will get the script that never worked made? Thank you for your years of entertainment and personally for retweeting a plea for donations back in 2020 for a group I sat on the board of that did stay alive and is thriving today, Paul. Hey, Paul. Uh, Happy to do it. I don't really remember what that was, but I am happy that we helped. There were a lot, not to push this, there were a lot of people who wrote saying they miss you on Twitter. Well, come find me on Instagram or on the talk, people. <laughs> they want you back. I can't. I just can't right now. Times change. So I don't think that just because a script hasn't been made, look, an athlete has a certain amount of time that they can do what they do. That's just physically the case. A great script or a powerful story or an idea that really connects to you, it can have its time. There are so many examples of, I mean, this year, All Quiet on the Western Front, they won a couple of the really big awards. The woman who first tried to do that, it took her like so many years of rejection and people coming on board and then people bailing. Look, I don't have a lot of faith in the gatekeepers at any time period. So why would I think that just because a script has not managed to find its way to getting made yet, that means it's not going to? Yeah, there's that old thing. Uh, you know, if 20 people tell you your dad lie down, I don't think it applies to Hollywood, really. I, I think that if a project has believers around it, and if it keeps attracting believers, even if it keeps not quite going the distance, that says that that it's got something, that there's something in it. And I would not give up. I would, I would not let that be the only thing. I would work on other stuff, but I would keep pushing that thing forward. 
Okay, one more writing question before we move on. Hi, Brian and Anna. I have an idea for a story, a stage play, or a film. The idea is persistent enough that it keeps coming back, and even if I'm focusing on other things. So there's something there. I've never written a play or a screenplay. This idea has a historical basis, but would be heavily fictionalized. What do you do after the idea comes, but before the first draft? Well, this ties into the earlier thing. You start thinking about how you want to tell the story, and then you take all the pressure off yourself. Your first draft does not have to even be decent. Nobody's going to see your first draft. Your first draft is just you powering out enough that you get kind of like the reason you wanted to tell it onto a page. You get the big beats of it that you've thought of out onto the page. It does not have to be crafted. And before that, you're going to write an outline. And the way I would think about an outline is just like you're telling a story to a friend, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. People make this stuff really complicated. There's something inciting that an inciting incident, something that makes the story start now. You want obstacles in each scene that a character wants something and it's hard for that character to get it. They have an intention and that intention is being thwarted and they have to find a new way around it. Somewhere in the middle, there's some kinds of reversals. The challenges deepen and then there's a resolution at the end. And if you just watch a bunch of movies thinking about, okay, where's this first act? Where's the second act starting? How are they thinking? Just watch movies and read screenplays. And if you do that enough, you will kind of internalize the way that those stories are told and then just break the acts down into scenes and say to yourself, how do these scenes each add up to tell this story? And again, take the pressure off. Yeah, you don't have to do this quickly. You don't have to do this perfectly. Keep it fun for yourself. Keep it engaging. Work an hour a day just while it's like really exciting and engaging to you. And then start again the next day. Good luck with it. Okay, now a question from Sydney that you got on Instagram. Hi, Brian. I'm curious if you'd ever write a memoir or do you consider your podcast episodes of Ask Me Anything a long-form memoir based on your openness and honesty and self-discovery to the questions? Also, since I know you from your EMI days and remember you getting picked up to go to night school, law school at Hofstra, I think. Do you think no. this type of discipline helps with someone with ADHD or was it complete torture after working creatively all day long? Cindy Davis, that's who that is. We worked together at a record company um, a really long time ago and great person. Her son plays uh, in the NFL incredibly and amazingly. Wow. That's wild. And she's great. And was such a sub. I watched for years how much of her time and effort while also having a career and teaching and doing all sorts of stuff. Her son is Tyler Davis and just uh, an incredible, uh, incredible uh, story and guy. And he's been in the NFL and he's coached and done all sorts of stuff. So, Cindy, I'll take the second part about ADHD. And yes, law school at night, I didn't go to Hofstra, I went to Fordham. Law school at night, law school in general was incredibly useful. I needed to prove to myself that I could turn things in on in close to on time, that I could complete a certain kind of writing assignment. It was also, though, I would say a form of denial because it was when I was 
trying to figure out if I could be a writer. Well, I didn't even really allow myself to frame it that way. I just knew I wanted to be getting an intellectual challenge is what I thought. The truth is I was running from being a writer. Being a writer was so scary to me. Uh, the failure uh, that was staring me in the face if I tried it. And law school seemed almost like a halfway place. Like, oh, well, I can do this thing that requires a certain kind of thought and a certain kind of intellectual grinding. And I would get to do a bunch of writing. And uh, I'm really glad I went. It was really hard because of the fact that it's not set up for people with ADHD to win, but I had a great group of friends who were incredibly supportive and really helped me study. And uh, I'm glad that I went. I'm glad that I graduated. As far as if I'll write a memoir, I think I probably, I think it's likely I'll write a book that will somehow have certain memoir elements tied into the battle to live a life fueled by creativity. I'm not sure when and the exact shape of it I'm still wrestling with, but that's going to, I mean, I think it's very, very likely that that's going to happen. And yeah, these AMAs allow me to think through some of the things that I want to say for sure. So that's perceptive, Cindy, no surprise coming from you. You've talked a lot about um, how ADHD has impacted whether, like, you know, how you went about writing and how long it took you to start writing. There's this question about um, anxiety that I was thinking about in your last answer, because you were talking about all the fears you had being part of why you went to law school. Max wrote and said, hey, Brian, you touched quite a bit on how ADHD has affected your writing life. I was curious if and how you've dealt with anxiety. I'm a writer who lives with anxiety my whole life. And while it doesn't surface for me while I write, it def it's definitely present when I pitch my work. And I was just curious how you've handled that in your life, especially early in your writing career when you were just getting started. Well, this is one of those things where people are, everyone's different. And I will be able to tell you, like, if I have anxiety, when I have anxiety, it would never manifest itself in me being nervous to go talk to a room of people. About <laughs> That's not... That's where you'd calm. Yeah, that's something I'm just like, that's never, I've never been nervous about that. And and in fact, even when, I would say, even if like I was in a desperate place and and the stakes were incredibly high, that is an environment in which I feel at home. I mm -hmm. not walking into a room of people, talking about an idea, engaging with them i'm able to separate them it's like when a person goes to a poker table if they're good at it once they've made the decision that that's the the money they're turning into chips and they're taking that to the table then those chips are not money that they need to pay their bills those chips are the poker chips that they're going to use to play really well and deploy as they need to now i have in my life absolutely suffered from anxiety badly De debilitating anxiety at times, panic attacks I've had. For me, and this is all personal, but for me, transcendental meditation reduced the physical manifestations of anxiety by so much, by like 85% or something like that. Like 
I meditate every day, most days, twice a day. That and exercise, I hate to sound like I'm just repeating the same bromides here, but it is the actual truth. Meditation breaks the cycle of that voice going in your head. I used to take, there was a time after my mom died in 2008, there was a time I was on um, Lexapro for anxiety, but I haven't been on it in years and years and years and years and years. I started meditating and it doesn't mean I'll never have to take medicine or, and I would if, I, if, if, if it got really bad, but somehow the meditation, morning pages and, and exercise, they really work wonders. They don't eliminate. I, I really don't like when people talk about things as miracle cures. They're not a miracle cure. They're not a cure all. They're just really effective at reducing the acuteness of the anxiety most of the time. Look, being alive is is feeling scared sometimes. Hmm. Being alive is knowing, as, as Amy writes about in her books, and as mom, my wife, what you love gets taken away. Like that's, and, and because that's the human condition, we tip toward being scared sometimes. And if we love hard, then, then even more so maybe. And people who are tipped toward being creative, they're in touch with this stuff. But there are tools and they're worth chasing down. And if TM isn't the right tool for you, something in that universe probably is. And some form of exercise probably is. You know, I'm not somebody who can just like do super boring exercise. So for me, a ball, it's great when a ball's involved. But like if I go play tennis for, for an hour and a half or two hours, and, and I've trained myself now, I can't do that. I can go on elliptical or treadmill for enough time, half hour, on the days that I can't go play a sport. And it accomplishes much the same thing. Throw the headphones on, blast the music, and, and do it. And music, too. And I think that's part of another thing for me is picking up the guitar. I'm not a great guitar player, no great singer. You know, I can sing fine. But that thing of playing and singing songs, writing songs, but even not writing them, you know, if I pick up a guitar and I start playing Much Too Young by Garth and singing it, I'll start laughing at myself. If you're laughing, you can't be anxious. So hmm. if you're smiling and singing, it's hard to be anxious. So I just, and again, that might not be the thing for you, but whatever that thing is for you, go do that thing. Okay. Your next question is going to get me in trouble, but Wait, if what? it's right in. Wait, what? How and what age did you get your kids to start practicing meditation? <laughs> he has it. <laughs> Well, is that full answer that I <laughs> is that really is that the full answer? Do you think he never suggested it? Sam meditated a lot for a lot of years, and he sometimes meditates. Anna rejected it for some reason. I'm a great wow. disappointment. <laughs> yeah, but Boo, let me ask you this question. Yeah, how have morning pages been for you? I cannot endorse morning pages enough. Morning pages, great. A plus. Life-changing, right? Life-changing. Exercise? How about that? Hot yoga? How's that do for you? When I do it, it's quite nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So for you, the meditation doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't, didn't take hold right now. I'm sure one day it will. 
Like, yeah, the other day we were here, the kids were both over the house and uh, it was time to meditate. So I was going to meditate and Sammy was like, come on, we'll meditate. So the two of us were tried to grab Anna. She sat on the couch for a second. And as soon as we closed our eyes, she was just out of there into the next room. She left. <laughs> yeah, I had to scamper away. I don't, I, I don't love sitting there. It's boring. Yeah, that's fine. That's I, my I, take on it. <laughs> you haven't quite locked in. Also, yeah, you haven't refreshed or you haven't had the need for it right now, maybe. I, you know, and, and look, do I think it would benefit you, daughter? I really do. And but, I know you do. And, and I know it would. I know it would. But I saw that question come in and I thought we couldn't not ask it. No, it's good to ask it. And I'm not going to guilt trip you or as you used to call it guilt trap you on this. <laughs> I think guilt trap might still be a better expression. I think so, too. It is a better expression. Okay. To quickly go into some parenting questions. Nice segue. Thank you. Well, this actually mm, is going to be sad because it's a question about your parents, but you did bring up your mom dying already. So, okay. Brian, first off, my heartfelt condolences on the passing of your father late last year. After the loss of both parents, has it changed the way you live your life, i.e. change your motivations to make the most of whatever time you have left? I'm inspired by the relationship you seem to have with your kids. I hope when my kids get that age, I have the same type of relationship with them. Well, I mean, getting older, I think, has that effect. I mean, watching my parents get sick, absolutely. It, it has to have an effect. It has many effects. I mean, very sad. Particularly my dad, who just died, you know, that was really heavy and still really heavy for me. But I, I've long had an awareness, as we were talking about, of the, the value of noticing that we're here right now and to love the people that we love a lot and hard and uh with intention i mean a lot of that has to you know is what fueled me wanting to do this stuff with with my life and fueled a lot of the decisions mom and i made about how to raise you guys so no uh the fact of my parents dying did not do that, but it okay. If I'm ag- now that I'm sitting here thinking this through, here's the thing I haven't talked about that much on here, if ever. When I was 13, a very dear friend of mine died, hmm. and he was. What's the language that you say it now, Anna? Alive. No, like died by suicide. Yeah, like, he died by suicide. Unalive. No, he died by suicide. Right, and and uh, we were. I just had turned 13 or was just about to turn 13. And that did flip my life upside down as it did all of our whole friend group. This kid and I were super uh, connected to one another. And I would say I've often wondered if I could just for a second, go back to who I was in the moment before I found out that he died. Mm. And, uh, what the outlook I had was then because everything drastically changed the next day. And, um, and I would say since then I've had an awareness in a conscious way of how short and perilous life might be. And so the choice that mom and I tried to make together and is, you know, to fully engage the best we can in, in loving the people that we love. And I know, you know, that sounds hallmarkish, but it's true. No, that is how you live your life fully. 
Yeah. Probably as a result of all that. Yeah. It's why you still accept me, even though I don't meditate. I mean, I don't know if I'll allow. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's a very full and generous answer. Good. Yeah. Here's a fun one. Food related. Hmm. Brian, my family, six of us will be in Manhattan Easter weekend. Where should we go for Easter brunch? Oh, wow. Easter brunch. And they suggested Mark's off Madison. I think it's just fun because neither of us have any clue what an Easter brunch might be like. Yeah, but that's a perfect choice. I think Mark's off Madison. Mark's brunch is incredible. He makes these incredible Easter bagels. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, I think that sounds like a great choice. I've heard that the brunch at for Charles is incredible and you can get in where you can't get in at night to that restaurant ever. Also, Anthony Mangieri does a little coffee and pastry thing. I think on Saturday mornings at Una Pizza that might be worth checking out. And yeah, I think those are all, those will all stand you in good stead. Okay. And one book question What's a major novel that you haven't read but intend to read in 2023? I have not really read enough Russian lit. It. I haven't either. We should do that together. Yeah. You've read Anna Karenina, though, and I have not. I have not read Anna Karenina. So let's read Anna Karenina together. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Great. Wait, you, never, you never read it? It's my namesake. Yeah, you're yes, it is your namesake. I know I know everything about it. I've read sections of it. I have not sat down. <laughs> I did not name you after Anna Karenina. Only one parent named me after Anna Karenina. But I love the name Anna. Now I love it a lot. <laughs> um, do you think I was more responsible for your middle name? Rose. Both kids, I really pick the middle names. That makes sense. That makes sense. Is that enough or do you want more questions? Well, you know, I sent you Tom Kretschmar, my good friend, asked me kind of a ridiculous question, ridiculous, but I it's I love him and I love his spirit. So can you find it? It was something like, wasn't it like what would be on the rider of a concert tour or something? I don't think you ever got the one from him to me. Hold on. I'll find it. I'm going to find it. Let me, Anna. Yeah. Has... Why don't you talk, because I've talked about so much. You want to just briefly talk about how Morning Pages affected this year of your life so far? You don't have to, but if if you have a thought on it. How Morning Pages have impacted my life this year? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think it's been both Morning Pages and then just sticking to what Morning Pages represent, which is sticking to a commitment to yourself. And having the artistic process be really just a commitment to yourself and nobody else that is impacted my yeah. life. Right. That makes total sense. Um, because I, I think doing that is what then has led me to like be able to get up on stage every day or like do things like that because I've, I start my day following through on the commitment, which I think takes away the doubt over whether or not you can do something because you wake up into doing the thing. 
Right. You wake up and boom, you're doing a thing. It's like the way that general talked about making your bed or something, which I know that one's not the one that's got you. No. So this is, and have you loved getting up on stage so much? Yeah, no, I think it's like going back to that question that was like, um, how do you deal with optimism and pessimism or what do you do once you like have the idea for something? It's like the, you know, you just have to do the thing. Like, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about how and not act like just getting into action. And I think so much of creating is um, happens once you're in action with the process. I honestly can't say that better. It's a hundred percent true. Okay. This is, this is Tommy, Tommy, the crutch, his question, brilliant lawyer, great guy, love him. And his question is the Brian Cobbman band is on their first post pandemic arena tour. What's the most important personal catering item? Oh, on the tour. I did not see that question. Ryder. Oh, it's too depressed. My answer is really not going to be impressive to anyone. Can I guess what it is? Can I guess? Sure. Are you going to say like those hostess donuts? Oh, the little donut holes? No. Yeah. I couldn't possibly. No, I think sadly it would just be like Pepsi Zero and ice, glass of ice and Pepsi Zero. You're not doing M&Ms with one color taken out? No, the brown M&Ms. No, but you know, the reason for that, I don't really think the later on the, what David well, said was the reason for it. You know? Attention to detail. Something yeah. else would be off. Yeah. But I'm I, your daughter. Of course, you know. Yes. I would say that, um, yeah, it would probably be that. And then like whatever the best pizza in the town is, they would have to have oh. that pizza in the mm-hmm. dressing room when we came off stage for sure. That pizza and Pepsi Zero. Hmm. And Anna, do you have any questions that you want to ask me? This isn't your only chance. Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of have other times where I can do that. It's true. Well, I think this has been awesome. Uh, I'm sure there were more questions we didn't get to. We'll keep them handy so that we can do them the next time. I mean, I could ask you one more question if you want. Okay. Which is, um, somebody said that on a passing, in passing on a different podcast, you mentioned that the smartest people have the hardest time learning. And they were wondering how you came to that insight. Oh, I don't remember saying exactly that. I wonder, I don't want to try to fake it like I do. I don't remember that. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling there must've been a nuance to that. Or I was just like misspoke. Maybe I said like, sometimes if you have a learning, I mean, the way that that is true, that it is for sure is people who have learning disabilities, but are brilliant. It can be incredibly frustrating to them to have to figure out the way that they need to learn. But you know, I'm comfortable saying, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm comfortable leaving and ask me anything with that too. Because I, when I started doing those vines that led to this podcast to begin with, my rules were, I would only say something if I thought it was true and if I thought it could be useful. And I like sticking to those rules. It has to be true and I have to believe it can be useful if I'm going to state an opinion. And this is a good reminder. I don't know the answer to that. I don't remember it. So I'm not going to try to fake it. Oh, I love that. Anna, Rose Koppelman, I love you. Thank you. Love for you, doing Dad. This. Everybody else, you can write me at the moment, BK at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram or uh, TikTok. You can send me a note on why you think I should be back on Twitter. I would like to get sucked into it. I just don't think that I... I just don't think I want to be there right now. But thank you, everybody. See you next time. Bye.